This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. And good afternoon, morning, and evening to everyone, and a special welcome to our guest of honor, Professor Dame Sally Davis. It's wonderful to see you again. We're delighted to host you. It could not be more timely. Arguably, Dame Sally Davies is the single most impactful and important person in the past decade in defining and advancing the global agenda on battling antimicrobial resistance. AMR, as she herself has repeatedly said, is a silent pandemic growing in the shadows as a global problem, eating away at the integrity of everyone's health system in a way, affecting all countries and touching on the domain of animals, of humans, and, in, and the environment, all of which are impacted. The central concern is resistance to medicines over time by an array of microbes. And that includes bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, rising resistance. The danger, the threat there is it makes infections far harder to treat, increasing the risk of disease spread of extreme illness and death. Thanks to Dame Sally's leadership and the multiple international partnerships she's forged, including collaborations with the CDC led by our great friend, Michael Craig, we've seen momentous progress in this past decade in reducing illness and death. There's been improved vaccine infection control at hospitals, clinics, and many other sites. There's been new national plans put in place with monitoring systems. We've seen better stewardship in the reduction in the overuse, overprescription of antibiotics, including in the reduced use with animals. We've seen more deliberate and sustained efforts to incentivize industry to develop new innovative vaccines and therapies. The pipeline for new vaccines is dangerously thin. We all know that. And it's tough. It's a tough thing to begin to create those incentives. Dame Sally achieved her global status in leading AMR while serving as Chief Medical Officer for England and Chief Medical Advisor to the UK government from early March 2011 until September 2019. In those roles, she was the first woman to serve in those roles. She's continued her mission on AMR and taken on some other duties we'll hear about while since becoming Master of Trinity College at Cambridge University beginning October 1st, 2019. Again, the first woman to serve in that role. She currently serves as UK Special Envoy on Antimicrobial Resistance, appointed in 2009. She's played a major role internally within the UK as well as internationally in that. We'll hear more about that in terms of the UK action plan, the high-level interactive dialogue that she's held back in April and the call to action and many other things in the preparations for the UK presidency of the G7, which is fast upon us. She received her... First Royal Honor of Dame Commander of the British Empire in 2009 for her public service. And at the 2020 New Year's Honors, she was named the second woman and the first outside of the royal family appointed in the Dame Grand Cross 
of the Order of the Bath, which is in honor of individuals who have had made exceptional contributions in service to public health and to research. So the arrival of SARS-CoV-2 17 months ago raised a number of tough questions, tough concerns regarding AMR. Did it lead to an overprescription? Did it divert staff resources, high level political attention? Is there some silver lining? We'll come around to that. We're in a new era of health security. AMR is part of that. Getting it to fit properly is a big issue. High level diplomacy in 2020 was to a very large degree paralyzed for factors we can talk about, but there were some important initiatives such as the ACT accelerator, the access to COVID-19 tools, including vaccines under the COVAX facility. But in other respects, there was a shocking absence of high-level diplomacy in the midst of this crisis in the early period. If you look at the Security Council, the G7 under the U.S. presidency, G20, it was pretty lackluster, if not flat out dead in its tracks. But that's changing. We're seeing high-level diplomacy come back in very important ways. Some of it supported, led, informed by Dame Sally herself. We're now in the midst of a very busy season. The EU G20 Global Health Summit completed its business a short time while, while back in May 21st. The World Health Assembly completes its business today. The G7 health ministers meet this week. You'll be participating in that, I believe, Dame Sally. And that's a lead up, an important lead up to the heads of state summit in Cornwall, the 11th to 13th of this month. So thank you so much. Let's move into this. I want to start with a personal question, which is you started as the master of Trinity College. You started as the envoy shortly before the arrival of SARS-CoV-2. What's life been like for you? I haven't spoken to you in a while. Thank you, Steve, and it's great to be here, and hello, everyone. And I think you've said most of it in your, in your introduction, so that makes for a good conversation, an easy one. But it's been hectic. If you thought Master of Trinity College was a retirement job, no, not when a pandemic hits, because how do you cope with 1,200 residential students and COVID, let alone the fact that uh, I've been spending... 30, 40% of my time on antimicrobial resistance, AMR, and my global envoy role. And I also set up the Trinity Challenge, bringing together a collaboration of private sector from around the world, academics from around the world, to try and engineer a collision between data science and public health. I should stop saying trying. They've achieved it. We launched a public challenge and it's going so well. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Now, while you're on the Trinity Challenge, the last time we spoke, you had just launched that and you were very excited about it. And as I recall, it was really trying to put out to anyone anywhere the challenge. Come forward with a powerful new idea that's worthy of moving forward and you will grab it as long as it's something that shows how Data can be used much better, more creatively, more powerfully in pandemic preparedness. So now it's been, what, a year and a half since we last spoke. What's the results been? Have you seen a flurry of brilliant ideas come your way? We absolutely have. It seems to have really stimulated people. We got 340 applications from 61 countries. And we've got an amazing judging panel uh, co-chaired by Siwa and Mark Dybel, and they've chosen 16 finalists. And 
Three of those are only in either the EU or US. The rest are global and spread around, three from India, a couple from Kenya, one from Thailand, really global solutions to help us better find the risk of pandemics, to manage them and even respond. So it's terrifically exciting. I'm looking forward to who's going to win a share of that six million pounds when we come to the finals announcement on June 25th. Good. Well, we'll look forward to reading about that. So let's turn to the pandemic, the silent pandemic. You've emphasized that AMR is a slow and silent pandemic. You've contrasted it against the very loud COVID-19. You've used an analogy of the method of cooking of lobsters that I found very clever. You might want to explain what that means. But what do you mean when you say we've got two different kinds of pandemics and how we need to register that in our heads as we think about now and into the future? Well, COVID hit us out of the blue, it was a zoonosis that hopped over and then spread. And one has to say that the global north had some hubris and didn't understand what was going to hit us. But antimicrobial resistance is different. That is infective organisms, particularly bacteria, but it's happening with HIV and malaria, all of them, TB is very worrying. On exposure to treatments develop resistance after all. It is survival of the fittest. And if we didn't have an empty pipeline, or rather empty, of new drugs, we might not be noticing this. When I was a young doctor, if I was told one of my patients had a resistant organism, the bacteriologist also said, oh, just open the cupboard, Sally, and get that one out, and you'll be able to treat or cure this patient. But already, we've got more than 700,000 deaths around the world each year of this, And it's um, without good action, strong action, that will rise to 10 million by 2050. And so we need better diagnostic, we need science, better prevention, infection prevention and control and vaccines, better diagnostics, new drugs. We've got a lot of work to do. And that metaphor you talked about explains it because if COVID's a lobster dropped into boiling water and making a lot of noise as it dies, then AMR is a lobster put in cold water, being heated up very, very slowly so it doesn't notice it's dying and it doesn't make a noise. And the people watching hope it's dying so they can eat it, but they don't really know it is until it's boiling and dead and it never made a noise. And AMR is like that. It's so slow that people habituate and they put it off. They say, well, maybe we can address that another day. Well, hang on a minute. If it takes 10 to 20 years to develop new drugs, you can't put it off for another day. By the time you've decided you're going to do something, it's too late. We've got to move. We've had a series of discussions with Michael Craig and others at CDC and Ramanan Laksiminarayan, who spoke earlier this afternoon, was on a program we're looking at AMR. And the question was, how do you begin to estimate what the impacts are? And of course, in your role as an envoy, You have a special power in in ability to put a spotlight on what is happening. Are we seeing overprescription for those who are coming in with the virus against possible bacterial? Are we seeing a slackening of momentum and political will? Are budgets, personnel, and laboratories being diverted? How do you begin to get even a sense of what's happening here in order to capture whether this is 
a field with great potential, with great momentum created over the last decade that may now be in a bit of regression or certainly in a suspended animation. I think we are in suspended animation. I think the other problem about AMR, not just the slowness, is its complexity. It's every bit as complex as climate change. And we know what's happened with climate change. People look at it and they say, oh, that's too difficult. And you've yeah. got to pick up problem after problem and solve those. And we know that in COVID, at the beginning, far too many antibiotics were prescribed. We did some studies showing they didn't work, but they needed to be done, just like antimalarials had to be proven not to work. But they're still being overprescribed. The stories coming out of India are horrendous. They already have a much bigger problem than you in the States or we in Britain have of AMR. But the use of antibiotics, both oral in the community and injected in the hospitals, is dreadful. And they are going to come out of this with a very big problem. So have we lost momentum? Well, we had some momentum. We did lose it. But actually, of course, this is about health security. And so we're waking up the politicians to, well, it's no point in talking about future pandemics and thinking only of COVID-style ones when we are partway through of a very important slow-growing one that will destroy our modern health systems. Antibiotics and anti-infectives have to be seen as critical infrastructure for a functioning health system. So time to wake up and do something about it. Do you feel that you're winning the argument? I mean, when you are making the case, AMR has to be an element, a central element of any strategy of pandemic preparedness and global health security, whether it's national or whether it's at a global level or a shared common global public good consideration. It has to have a profile, it has to be at the table, it has to be recognized. Do you feel like you're making progress in winning that argument? Well, we are. Technically, we want it, but in politicians, as you know, matter. And I think, um, well, I know that under Obama, the White House was supportive and we had action, which had started years before. It slowed under the previous incumbent, but I'm told, and I'm going to find out at the end of the week, but I believe it, that the new administration really gets this and are going to make some leadership moves. And then look at the Pasteur Act that is bipartisan. Yeah. Two of your senators are bringing in. That's fantastic. It actually is a much, much bigger, better version of our own subscription pilot that we're trying in Britain. That will change the incentives on companies in one swoop if it's done. And then the trick is how do we stop people who just want to come along for a ride and not pay their fair share? Yes. I want you to say a bit more about that, because in both your effort at the UK, the Netflix model, as it's being called, a subscription formula for purchasing on a continuous basis, an advanced purchase, really, arrangement on antibiotics. Pasteur Act has similar ideas in this. Tell us, why is this so important in getting industry incentivized and locked in, in ensuring supply, and in trying to continue to support good stewardship and avoid overprescription? Thank you. So pharmaceutical companies, as we all know, make their money from selling drugs and profit is their motive. And you can have a blockbuster where you make a very big profit because it's a brand new biological 
Or you can have something relatively old, a pill for diabetes or high blood pressure, where you make only a tiny profit, but of course they're taking it every day. Now think about anti-infectives. They're used on average antibiotic once a year for people, and they are only seven to 10 days. Where's the profit in that? Meanwhile, over the years, we've got so used to them, we stopped paying high prices. In fact, we've competed in a race to the bottom. So actually, over a two-year period, 150 million loss was made by companies on producing antibiotics. Well, they made 9.75 billion profit on their oncology part of their portfolio. So you can see why companies have stopped big ones investing in these. And little ones who've made good ones have found it difficult to sell on to big ones and have gone bust. And the examples are Melinta and Archaeogen. So what we need is a way to pay for these that's fair to cover the cost. I don't think they need to make profits particularly, but so they don't make losses that doesn't push people to overuse them because overuse drives that natural selection of resistance. We want them to be used when they matter, but only when they matter. In fact, I want them to be really useful, sat on the cupboard in the pharmacy. And so our, our pilot and the Pasteur Act's not that dissimilar, is we are valuing two um, antibiotics that were chosen following a competition. And we're valuing them not just by normal qualies, dallies, and usual health technology assessments to the individual patient that takes it, but to that hospital, that health system, our health system, and our society as a whole. So we're valuing them quite differently. And we're asking the G7 countries to join us in agreeing the principles of valuation that could be different. And then you pay a subscription and they're properly stewarded because the annual subscription pays for the cost and doctors and nurses and vets for other ones, use them as they need them. Thank you. Let's talk about diplomacy. And then I want to come back and talk a little bit more about you and communications and being a woman charging ahead through all of these different barriers. But we have a lot coming forward. The World Health Assembly is ending today. We've got the G7, we've got the health ministers this week. We've got the heads of state, the 11th, 13th. There's both hope that we're going to see some dramatic results out of this. As you point out, the U.S. is showing greater leadership, greater determination and interest, and that's very encouraging. There's also reservation skepticism. The U.K. has halved its ODA budget uh, in most recently, which has set things back a bit. What do you see as the most promising outcomes from both the WHA and looking ahead at the G7? What are you hoping for? Well, in health, our prime minister has announced with WHO and the Wellcome Trust this concept of pandemic radars, having nodes, and the CDC will be one, but nodes around the world that are monitoring for what's happening with infectious diseases, including AMR. And I knew about this idea as it was being thought up, and I have to say, I think we need things like that. I hope we can use data more creatively and collect data from different places. So I think that will come out of it. And Atlanta will be one of the nodes, correct? Yes, so I hear. 
and so it should be with CDC as, as one of the international leaders, global leaders in so many ways. So that'll be great. We're asking countries to join us in thinking through how to incentivize producing more anti-infectives. We're asking them to think about the environment. Only a couple of weeks ago, the environment ministers agreed to do work on the environmental discharge of pharmaceutical factories, because this is very worrying. We need to really move forward on the supply chain of all drugs, and this includes anti-infectives. Is it secure? Is it really transparent? I, I still find it odd. I know where my clothes come from. I know where my food comes from. I can't find out where my drugs come from. So we're interested in that side of security. But I think there'll be much more coming out. Uh, Britain is uh, leading some work on clinical trials or looking at how to use data better in emergencies and share data. And so I have high hopes for all of this. Thank you. We've got a few minutes left here. I'd like to turn back to your own personal history. I mean, you're a pioneer in many respects. You've uh, led these major institutions inside government, in, in the academy and in international organizations, uh, often as the first woman to occupy those positions. You've also mastered communications in a way that goes way beyond what is normally the case in terms of people that are in these positions that have a public-facing set of responsibilities. When you've talked about your own history, you've talked about what you learned as you advanced through some of these positions. You've talked about taking a little time out and going to INSEAD, I think it was, to do a leadership course and that that changed your outlook. Tell us a little bit about yourself in that regard, if I may ask you. Well, I am basically very intellectual and it took me a long time to understand that IQ isn't the only thing one needs. You need emotional intelligence. And in fact, I have it, but I'd never harnessed it. And so the course at INSEAD taught me that. But it also taught me, interestingly, how to get into communication, because what's the point of a conversation if I'm talking past you? So, Steve, I have to think where you're coming from. And if you're a politician, I have to think about what you would respond to. So I've become quite expert and actually, even without thinking about it, framing the issues for the person I'm talking to. So they will engage and start to think through how can they help. But of course, I've been pretty well trained on communications by making mistakes as well as by experts helping me and saying, you could do that better. And I think early on, one of the nicest things was I used to say to the BBC journalists, please help me. If I can do this better, tell me. And I meant it. And they knew I meant it until one of them turned around at the end of an interview and said, I'm not helping you anymore. You've got there. Now I'm going to take you on, which I thought was rather sweet. That is very interesting. Let's close on a question around, personally, where do you find the reservoir of hope and optimism? Because you are very conspicuously an eternal optimist. And that's immediately apparent. But where does that come from? What's the root of optimism and hope for you as you think about these colossal problems that we face? Not just AMR, but I mean, we've got this pandemic, we've got HIV, TV, we've got colossal public health problems in front of us. 
So it comes from a strong belief in the goodness of humanity and the strength of science and the belief that if you put them together and you empower people, you can change communities. And I think we're seeing some of that with COVID. And I do believe that if you're positive and you help people, they deliver, they make a difference and we all go forward. It's about them, not me. Thank you. And thank you for taking this time to be with us. It's just been really terrific having this conversation here today. And I want to wish you and everyone involved in the G7 the best of fortune. With that, we've had close dialogues with the folks preparing for the summit. I know the level of effort is quite extraordinary. I know people here are very eager to see the returns, to see the outcomes, as we're hoping for a new coalescence of leadership around these issues that's been missing. And this may prove to be one of those catalytic moments. And thank you for all the contribution you've made to that. Thank you. And I'm praying that we get there too. And a special thanks also to your colleague there in the UK consulate, Kariane Jones-Parr, who's been very, very helpful. Thank you. Good to meet you again, Steve. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 